Hello, and welcome to the Learning to Learn podcast, where we provide tools and resources to educators and parents of kiddos who could use a little extra help. With our combined 50 years of experience, we've helped thousands of students improve their academic proficiency, boost their test scores, and chart a course to a lifetime of growth, all by discovering the joy of learning. Look us up or connect with us at mmeslearn.com. I'm your host, Nehemiah White. And today, we have with us the founder of Mrs. Myers Education Services, Tammy Myers. Tammy, good to have you here again. Thank you, Nehemiah. I appreciate it. Really been enjoying the conversations we've been having. Last episode was fascinating for me because as we talked about, I learned so much about the connection between what you do as a speech pathologist and what you established at the Learning Lab. You also revealed the main idea behind the reading room and uh, how it was developed around serving teachers. We'll be discussing today is going from that point to where we're at today. So what we both know is that your idea didn't remain just a reading room idea. Since it was originally designed for teachers, you had bigger thoughts in mind for it to be implemented into schools. Can you speak to us a little bit about the first seeds of that thought? And then share the experience of your first school implementation of the Mrs. Myers Reading Room. Sure, I'd be happy to. Exciting times. So I was the first teacher at Mrs. Myers Learning Lab, and I was teaching all of the classes. And it wasn't too long before we needed to hire and train teachers just to help me teach these classes. And we were having phenomenal results. Um, not just of the children advancing through our program, what we could see with our eyes, but we had parents bringing in report cards and standard test scores, and we had teachers calling us, asking us what we were doing. And as we had all of this anecdotal information of progress, we were thinking, how do we get in front of more kids? How do we get in front of more kids? Well, obviously, you get in front of more kids by getting in front of the teachers and letting the teachers know what we're doing and how we're doing it so that they can implement this in their classrooms. So that was the first thought. And then as I began learning more and more about the structure of education and the way that children receive help now is a little different than when I was working in school systems early in my career. And it was, you know, teachers can help their students. I'm not trying to say that at all. But for formalized referrals, there is a, a process. And that process generally is tiered. So you have tier one, tier two, and tier three. So a tier one is general classroom instruction with minimal support from the teacher, but still support is there. Tier two instruction is a little more support. It's a little more formalized where there is actual data that's being collected to decide if the student can essentially survive and thrive in a tier one, just regular classroom instruction, or do they need more support and they need a tier three instruction, which is the resource room or resource room teacher. Does that help answer your question? A little bit about the initial seeds of thought for yes. how it would look like in a school. Yes. Yes. And how did you start to tailor it for the schools? So, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking is 
what are some of the key elements that are designed specifically for school implementation that you started to establish early on? Oh, very, very early on was this small group instruction. Having no more than seven students in a group, uh, that way they could get individualized attention. Having very specific and predictable elements where you introduce the skill that you're wanting the students to learn and use and having multiple opportunities to apply that skill in a functional way that they can then generalize into their classroom work as well. This type of program, we designed it specifically for not a pull out program necessarily. Some schools use it like that. They just find it easier. We have schools where teachers actually just pull back. So they have these tables in the back of their classroom where they do their group work and this is one of their groups that they come through and do the group work that way. So that is one of the design elements that we did implement right away so that this could be implemented in classrooms. So a real structured approach of the method so that any teachers could pick it up. Well, it's a structured approach, uh, very predictable for the students. So once the routines are established, it flows smoothly and quickly and seamlessly. Okay. Okay, that's really helpful to understand. Now, when you started to implement this in schools, you had that kind of that first experience. Can you share with us some of that experience of that first school implementation of the reading room? Sure. Well, first of all, I won't say it was without hiccups. (laughs) It was a learning process for all of us. But we had a school that was a private school that was accepting students on a voucher program. And these students were struggling in a public school setting for multiple reasons, but they were struggling. And from going to a private school that had a certain socioeconomic status of accepting of children that attended their schools for decades, they started bringing in children with more and more issues through the voucher program of different socioeconomic statuses, different life values. They brought in, you know, different cultures. And what they were seeing was instead of being able to mold students to learn how they taught, they were having to shift how they taught to how students learned. And there were multiple reasons for that. But that was something that they were struggling with is the students were not making progress because they were trying to teach them the way they had always taught without consideration to how the students were learning. So what we did is introduce them to our Myers method, which is a multimodality approach. Uh, So it encompasses multiple learning styles. Also, like we spoke previously with the hands-on activities, the experience of learning. And that concept was something that that they were searching for, but they couldn't name it at the time. They're like, we've got to do something. We have to do something. You know, these students, we love them. We want them to make progress. So then what we ended up doing was instituting a resource room teacher and helping them design their resource room structure. And it was decided that at that particular school that the resource room teacher would implement the Mrs. Myers reading room program at the time. And so they reviewed their MAP scores. We identified key students that needed the support. It is a tier two support. 
And those students made uh, significant gains through the program. The school is happy. The parents were happy. The students were not only happy, they were more confident students. I had teachers stopping me in the hallway and saying, what have you done? This is phenomenal. And I said, well, I really didn't do it. Miss so-and-so is the one doing it. She's using our program to do it. It was so rewarding to see that happen. And their state uh, report card and state test scores soared from utilizing this program. That's really cool to hear, uh, you know, even with all the hiccups um, that a first implementation always goes through, that the process was established. Process you established then, I mean, we largely use today. So it's, it's not vastly different. And it sounds like there was a lot of learning experiences in that first implementation. Uh, there were. I mean, I could tell you some stories mm-hmm. <laughs> if you wanted. Um, you know, we have changed and updated our onboarding because of some of the things that we did learn from that. Some of our ordering processes and because we do use a proprietary app for students to design, write, and illustrate their own books that are published. So we um, had to implement ways to protect that and also censor so that the language was appropriate for a published book from a student. <laughs> um, yeah, because what some listeners may not know is your students in your reading room actually publish their own book. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. We have a Build-A-Book app. That's ours that the students use as part of their learning process. Yeah. So the control aspect of that is really important because you're kind of acting as a publisher. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we, we help them write and design and apply what they're learning in the class to write and illustrate their book. And then we publish their books for them. And so as part of that publishing responsibility, we also edit. And so we learned a lot as far as developing the guidelines for student use of that technology and you know, what is appropriate you know, how, what should be allowed in the publication of a child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're very diligent in that. And then the students are very compliant. They want their books published. Mm-hmm. And so, and they understand, they understand. Um, I will tell you, I have a story about this one little guy that he had the most fantastic story. And After he got about halfway through his story, I realized it was actually about him. And it was about this boy that was very shy and didn't think he could do anything. Everything he did, he just didn't think he could do. And as he was drawing his illustrations, I was looking at those pictures that he was drawing and they were, they were so artistic and thoughtful and covered the whole span of a page. Like he would go in and draw his face as an eye and a nose and half of his mouth. Like, like it was a a microscopic lens on him. Everything he drew was oversized on the page. Like this microscopic lens was really looking and he was only eight, but you could tell that he was so thoughtful And I think it was, you know, he was looking into himself as he was drawing these pictures and writing the story. Uh, But he was so self-conscious that he would draw a picture, he would show it to me, and then he would delete it. Like he had, it took me probably two months to get him to keep a picture on a page. 
he just, he, he thought it had to be perfect and it never looked perfect to him. We got through it. Uh, his self-confidence grew substantially. And I mean, to the point where he asked everyone in his family if he could read to them. And he grew out of his reading group at his school. And uh, his, his mom was just elated. I, I can't even tell you. She said he was a different child. But the fact that he understood cognitively, he understood what was going on and, and how difficult reading was for him to the point that it made him that self-conscious, but he didn't have the words to communicate it. And he was able to communicate through his drawings was really important and really important that we were able to finally get him to illustrate that book and get it published. You know, Tammy, this goes back to that first conversation that we had in the first episode about why education is so important in the life of a child, that it doesn't just touch on the academic informational part of their brain, but in the community experience that they live. And so you helped this child go from a position of really seclusion surrounded by community to blossoming as a micro contributor to his own micro community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He came out of his shell and became so confident. And that's what we see a, a lot over and over. What teachers tell us is a child that is not participating in class, all of a sudden will start participating. They'll start being the one to volunteer to do things. And that's usually what happens first. They'll volunteer to do things before they volunteer to read aloud, right? But so they're starting to feel safer in that environment. And then they'll start volunteering to read. That's incredible. You know, Tammy, at some point, your reading room became a learning lab. What inspired that change and what happened to make that shift? Well, I met a phenomenal person. Her name is Amanda Nason, very talented individual, extremely well-educated, much smarter than I am. And she happened to be my neighbor. And I started talking to her about the reading room and she was interested. We had conversations and, and I kept sort of teasing her that she needed to come and work with me. She needed to help me do this, that there are so many children we could reach if, you know, we had her talent. So finally, uh, we got her to come on part time. And one of her areas of expertise is math and math instruction, math coaching with teachers, curriculum development. So I asked her after she had been with us for a few months, if she would be interested in developing a math curriculum. And she, I don't know, we'd had several little micro conversations about it. I want to say it was my idea to ask her, but it might've been her idea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll arm wrestle next episode. Yeah, I was say, Let's get her in here and ask her. So whoever's idea it was, she started developing a math curriculum and we actually launched it during the COVID pandemic. Wow. And which was a little scary. This had been almost a year in the planning of launching the math curriculum, Mrs. Nason's Nifty Numbers. And the fact that COVID hit in March and our launch was June, and we ended up only being two weeks late in launching the, the math curriculum program, which is a miracle in itself. But we did it. It happened. And uh, we have helped so many children with that. So we, we ran with that Mrs. Nason Nifty Numbers under Mrs. Meyer's Reading Room for several months. And then someone said, why is it called Mrs. Meyer's Reading Room when you do reading and math? And it's funny because I'd never thought of it. I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why are we doing that? <laughs> 
So uh, we brainstormed about the name. I like alliteration. So we named it Mrs. Myers Learning Lab. So it encompasses reading and math and then whatever else we want to add to it in the future. That's really cool, Tammy. And you know, it kind of brings in that sciencey component that you have in the speech pathology realm, mm-hmm. where it turns it not just academic learning, but it's a lab. It's a it's a scientific uh, process of experiment and experience. That's fantastic. And Tammy, we will be meeting Amanda next episode. Uh, she's going to be sharing with us some of her history, kind of doing a little bit of a walk down memory lane, kind of like yourself. And then in a couple of episodes from now, we'll bring you both together to maybe reminisce a little bit about your initial introductions, the initial ideations behind what you have built. Uh, there's a, Again, there's some of that that's on YouTube. We've posted in the past, but that I think is going to be a fun conversation. I think it will be too. I, I think I might need a reminder of her version of the story. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be good. It's funny how we all remember things differently. Well... That brings us to today, where we are now operating as Mrs. Myers Education Services. And I guess as we start to wrap up the episode for the day, can you help us to understand your, well, first, when did Mrs. Myers Education Services become an official entity? And then what's your vision for Mrs. Myers? And how do you see the Myers Method impacting our kids' education in the next five to 10 years? It's a loaded question. Oh, wow. You may have to remind me of some of those. We'll go one at a time. I'm really good at asking like five questions in one. (laughs) And then then I might answer part of one. (laughs) So let's just start. When did Mrs. Myers Education Services become an official entity? So Mrs. Myers Education Services started in January of 2022. Okay. Okay. And it launched uh, because of the need to have specific operations to servicing schools in the community. The Mrs. Myers Learning Lab has specific operations to serve children and their families through teaching, reading, and math. Mrs. Myers Education Services really is a community-based program. Like we really want to serve the teachers and the schools that touch the lives of children. And so there's a very distinctive operational difference there that needed to occur. I hope that makes sense. It does. And I think that'll make sense to our audience that some of our listeners know about the Learning Lab, formerly known as the Reading Room, and they're learning, you know, what's this ed services side? We're hearing they're in some schools, but what's the difference between them? I think that was a very helpful description. So then what's your vision for Mrs. Myers Education Services? My vision for Mrs. Myers Education Services is to be in as many schools as possible across the country. We need to be educating our children and making sure that they can read and making sure they have their the math skills for life. And there are children in every community that fall in that gap area. There's a certain percentile rank on standard scores that places children in that gap area where they're teetering. They're teetering between success and failure. Those are the kids that we need to target because those are the children that don't qualify for special services. Our program covers those services and touches those children and and lifts them up into that tier one instruction so that they can be successful in their classrooms and they can be successful academically. We need to be certifying teachers in schools to teach our program. We need to license our program into schools. We need to have those teachers in front of as many children as possible to lift them up. 
And how do you see this Myers method impacting our broader education experience for our kids in the next five to 10 years? Oof, that is a big question. In the next five to 10 years, I think, I believe what we're seeing in the literature about the, not just the science of reading, that's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a gimmick, but it sort of is a gimmick right now. The, the science of learning is what we're going to be seeing. Like the combination between education theory and cognitive theory in the psychology realm is going to be more blended. I don't know if it'll be in the next five years, but hopefully in the next decade, may take two decades. Sometimes the academia moves slowly in their transitions. And we've seen that if retrospectively in the different areas of learning to read opportunities and, and research that's come out, and especially research that we're finding decades later that didn't work. And so we're reverting back to traditional phonics that fits into that science of reading scope. But I think that what we're going to see is this blending of how do we learn cognitively? How does our brain and our body work to learn versus how do we theorize teaching? And instead of teaching content, I, I really think we're going to see this core curriculum standards, these core standards. We're going to see those expand not into what to learn, but how to learn. And we're going to see a lot more experience-based teaching. I'm seeing that myself, Tammy, actually. And, and um, some of our listeners know, I, I think I have said in the past, I've not been in this primary education circle very long at this point. And so there's a lot that I'm learning. And even from the little bit that I've learned, I'm seeing that shift that you're describing. And it's inevitable, especially given the progressive understanding of how we learn as opposed to assumptions or opinions that we've had in the past or even theories. There's some real true science behind how the brain works and how we learn. Well, it's really exciting to see how your, the method that you've designed is actively impacting the children in our local communities uh, beginning to really impact the children in communities uh, afar from us. And to hear your vision from when you were a 14-year-old on a stage learning how to hide that Southern twang <laughs> in a play to today painting a vision for having resources in the majority of our schools where students can learn that learning is enjoyable. Absolutely. And, yeah, and spark that curiosity. Yes. Spark the learning. Well, I think we'll end with the, our, our classic, Tammy, what strategy or what technique can you leave with our parents or educators that they can uh, think on and maybe implement with their kids or their students today? Oh, I wish I would prepare for these. I keep forgetting you ask this question. <laughs> um, okay, I will tell you this. A lot of times children have to read, the teachers say 20 minutes a day. Have you heard this from your children? They're supposed to read 20 minutes a day? Yes, yeah, so I get papers every once in a while that I'm supposed to do something with. And I think the teachers wonder if I'm actually listening to what they say. <laughs> <laughs> they all do that. So you're not alone. <laughs> Especially if you're working with a child that's either just learning to read 
or struggling to read. And we've all been there when a child struggles and they try to sound out every single word and it takes forever to read two sentences. One of the techniques that I like to use is I call mirrored reading. And it's where I read the sentence first or the phrase, depending on how long the sentence is. I'll take it in chunks. And I read it first, showing the word as I read it. And I read it with great inflection and enthusiasm. And then the child reads it back to me. All right. And I'm, I'm not going to use air quotes because they're so cliche, but I would use them (laughs) and say, when I say the child reads it back to me, essentially they're just repeating what I said. So it's an auditory memory, but their eyes are absorbing those words. So don't discount that. It's very important that when you do mirrored reading, that the child follows your finger as they're mirroring, repeating what they just heard. And I do that phrase by phrase or sentence by sentence until the child is literally reading. And you can do it with multiple text. It's still a reading task. It can certainly count as your child's 20 minutes of reading. But what you find is instead of that staggered, struggled pattern, you start hearing and seeing more natural inflection. And you start hearing and seeing where your child is actually struggling because it won't be on every single word. Eventually, it will be on the true difficult blends that they're trying to make in that reading. That's really helpful. You know, that reminds me of the story of Ronald Reagan. His son wrote a biography on him. And Ronald Reagan was reading fluently, like newspapers and bills, like he'd open up the bill and read it and stuff at like age five. And he wasn't all that surprised by the fact that he could do that because he said that his parents, it may have been both of them, but at least his mother would sit down with him every single night and read with him. And it was any kind of book, but she would follow along each word as she read the entire time that she was reading with him. And he was able to get the connection between the sight and the sound and the pronunciation, all of that, just by following along with his mom. That's powerful. It is. It's really interesting too. The the monotone reading that we hear in children, especially third, fourth, through fifth grade, and these are even good readers, but it's very monotone because they're not taught to practice that inflection that makes it interesting. And it does take practice. I love it when the kids come home and start using that inflection. It's so cute. (laughs) Timothy is one of the classic because he loves his inflection. And once he gets into it, it makes reading a lot of fun. That doesn't surprise me. He's a natural. (laughs) (laughs) He is. Well, Tammy, this has been a delightful journey over a couple of episodes, hearing where you started and what the initial seeds on that performance stage so many years ago in the mind of a 14-year-old has developed into an incredible resource for children today that is effective, that is exciting, and that seems to be charting a, a path that's going to help our, our educators and our parents really make a massive difference in the lives of their children. Thank you. Thank you, Nehemiah. I appreciate your effort into all of this too. I really do. I'm very sincere about that, not just because I'm recorded. I do want to say though, I think I was six, seventeen. 
I was 17, not 14. 14 is more <laughs> impressive. I don't know. <laughs> I'll probably stick with that. It'll come up in another Just couple of episodes. <laughs> well, yeah, I wish I could say I graduated high school and when I was 14. That was my senior year. So yes. I was 17. Okay. Well, I will work on my listening skills as we move forward. <laughs> That's okay. I was going to just roll with it. You know, it's pretty good. Yep. Uh, but I mean, this is all a lot of fun. And the, the conversations that are being created, and I think this is going to create a lot of conversations in homes uh, and schools. And hopefully, if you're listening to this today, and uh, it sparked some ideas or some questions, and uh, you'd like to run some things by Tammy or Amanda, who you'll meet in the next episode, feel free to reach out to us. Give us a call. We are at a lot of the different conferences. We're happy to sit down and have a conversation or just a phone call. You can look us up on our website at mmeslearn.com and uh, we'll keep these episodes coming and the conversations happening. So thank you again, Tammy. Thank you for the journey. And thank you for those of you who have joined us today. We look forward to joining us on the next episode here on the Learning to Learn podcast.